0: of Reptile Fight Club. Guests are back, people. We've got we've got a two a couple of get, good guests today. I'm um, excited to have these guys on. Um, so, uh, Dave Levinson, um, welcome to the podcast. How you doing?
1: Doing well, man. I appreciate the invite. We want to do this for a while.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was uh, uh, kind of this was kind of prompted by Dave sending a message asking if I'd seen this. Um, topic on facebook or something so it was a good topic and uh worthy of a fight so we got uh dave on and and also with dave is william philippe how you doing Ooh, Will?
2: pretty good glad to be on it's been a while i've been bugging you for a while about these uh justin but i just it's either been busy or just forgot about it just life i guess
0: yeah we we had kind of a, a mix up or lull in the podcast a bit with uh yeah with the well, and then you, up start in hitting, you,
2: you start hitting a lot of the topics I told you about anyway, so it's kind of like ah uh, well <laughs> you you've hit them. so it's all right it's
0: <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah i've I've wanted to have you on for a while, so glad we could get you on, so this will be great well um what's what's new what's going on with you guys? you want to introduce yourselves maybe uh tell tell us a little bit about yourself a little background. let's go ahead and start Will.
2: well, I'm will uh I run a company called TJW Exotics, and I work with a lot of different things. And getting pairing stuff up, working on a building that I'm currently in right now. So, yeah, real busy. Yeah, yeah.
0: really impressive building too. You sent a couple pictures the other day. It was pretty, pretty sweet looking. <laughs> I
2: appreciate right the it. facility. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, have you scary. kind of built that?
0: <laughs> built that it's kind of the ground up, and and yep,
2: yep. It was, uh, I tell you what, I I, I posted a picture because I'm not on social media hardly now because of this, the whole building is taken up because we had the shell and the uh, skeleton of it put up, but we pretty much did most of the inside. So just, I mean, been busy for for probably most of this year, you know, so, and it it really screwed (laughs) me rodent wise too. Oh my God, God. horrible. We had to cut our collection in half put them in a small, smaller shed that isn't insulated, didn't have any way to cool them down. This summer got super hot, killed another half of the rodent collection, so we had stuck with almost no rodents. And I live close to Dave, and Dave couldn't save me either. I'm disappointed in <laughs> you, Dave.
1: Kind of close. I had to save myself, buddy.
0: <laughs> uh, rodents uh, can be kind of make or break in some instances, and it's hard.
2: I just finding people yeah. with them, my god, yeah. it was like it almost made me go like, "Why do I do ball pythons? They're the only thing that <laughs> eats life."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I've been breeding mine for you know 20 plus years, so yeah, it's
2: oh it's yeah, not... yeah.
0: It's it's hard when you have to go out and source them. So I just kind of yes, said, I'm right. going to do it. But but yeah, things get rough when it gets cold or too hot or too cold. And you get, right?
2: Oh, yeah, it, was, it was brutal. <laughs> like Dave and, and I, man, I don't. This is going to sound bad, but I can't bring myself to do what Dave does. Dave drove down to like Texas to get like three thousand mice or something. Dave, oh, this was yeah. a while ago, I think. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, we. Yeah, it was a shortage locally. I um, we produced a lot of babies that year, and I couldn't find enough anywhere around me. And I could only do so much with frozen thawed. So yeah, we did the round trip down to Texas. It was our only option, and our cheapest option, to be honest with you. When I started calling around, but I want to say it was probably like around two thousand twenty, two thousand twenty-one, right around that time.
2: It's been rodents been short ever since
1: then. I mean, I, rodents have been short today- for twenty years
2: i don't know it seemed like they were easier to get 10 years ago for me i mean great well yeah i mean my collection's gotten bigger but it's really just the ball pythons that are eating live rodents everything else i just i get frozen thawed and it's not too big of a deal you
1: know i get that i I prefer my frozen thawed species
0: Yep. especially in times like this and uh, i I neglected to to mention that we've also got our uh, faithful co-host here uh Bobby rock <laughs> rob stone how you doing, man? fine oh, hi, hi. <laughs> perfect all right, well, this lovely echo is a uh, wonderful so- thing <laughs> yeah are you oh, okay, yeah, now it's gone. thank you. <laughs> that's perfect, okay, so uh yeah, we'll um. I don't know how how are how are your breeding seasons going? You guys uh, in the thick of things? You pairing stuff up or long past pairing up?
2: Yeah, just been pairing stuff up. Not not getting a whole lot. I mean, a little bit of breeding here and there, but uh, we'll see. I I after last last year breeding wise was just so bad that I got hit with like the trifecta. Like we got we had a really warm winter. Maybe just a handful of days it got cool enough to cool my room down, and then with the ball pythons, they had such a rodent shortage that I just couldn't feed them that much. So you know, no. like the old saying, if you don't feed them, they don't breed. So yeah, <laughs> and they 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 didn't get fed as often as I usually would. And I'm I'm kind of more like you guys though too with the feeding. I don't I feed my ball pythons very seasonally, so mm-hmm. I try so I don't usually run into that. You know. Issue with feeding wise with them, yeah. so
0: yeah, yeah, they can be a headache. Those ball pythons, you, I you treat you treat them like anything
2: else. Like <laughs> I don't feed them for months at a time. I tell you what, they you maybe every once in a while you get a few that are still like, nah, I'm, I'm dumb enough to keep going. But uh <laughs> other than that, most of them usually go. He's like, oh shit, I may not get to eat. I better take yeah. a chance while I got or got it because I think everyone else's ball pythons get so used to you know, constant week or two week feedings that, you know, they can afford to go fast for a while. Well, If you make them fast before that, well, then they just, they don't know. Then it's more like what they would see in the wild.
0: Yeah. I think uh, Ryan Young called that purposeful neglect. That was, you know, I've I've heard
2: Warren Booth say too that calculated neglect. Yeah, I mean, yep. it what, sounds bad, but it's I mean it's true. It's I mean, no, I
0: mean that's what they experienced <laughs> in the wild. Why would you, oh, yeah. you know, why would you not right, not go right. with a more naturalistic uh, regimen? Right. But, yeah. oh. Cool. Well what what are you guys excited for as far as production this year? Mm. Any uh, projects got you foaming at the mouth?
2: <laughs> well, I, hopefully I have better luck with pygmy pythons. I have one more female that she's had She's the one that's still yet to breed. I've told you about my other two. I was having issues with their not them breeding, but product or uh, you know fertility wise with them. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying yeah. this uh, other girl, and we'll see how this goes. And, you know, yeah. Mister Julander saved the day with uh, you know hitting you up because I mean there was there, was, there was literally only maybe like two people I could think of, of hitting up for pygmy pythons, and you were obviously on top of the list you know you're the, you're,
0: yeah they they're a challenging species in in a lot of regards but i i don't i don't think they're that extremely challenging i mean i hear a lot of disparaging remarks from our good friend owen but i don't right, think right. they warrant those uh you know they're they're paying to get starting on food right right no worse than a black-headed python or you know right picky, uh, it's uh, like lizard. i've heard
2: um i it might even have been you that mentioned this but i mean it's like, well, you were just not, it's not that they're horrible to, you know, animals. It's just, we just don't feed them the things they should be getting yeah. fed, you know? Yeah. And honestly, I, I was talking, to, I've been talking to a lot of people. I've been like, man, we, we get these big companies for rodents and stuff. I'm wondering maybe eventually someone might decide to do feeder lizards or something. Yeah. I mean, shit, ball pythons are bred to such an extent. I mean, why don't we just do... Feeder ball pythons. And this might yeah. lead into our conversation later, by the way, but yeah. I'm going to bring something along this, this up later on. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That's just what I, I, it's been in my head for a while, you know, yeah. fixing because you know, something I've been meaning to ask you, Justin, about anteresia. You ever noticed with uh, constipation problems with some stuff, maybe, you know, where like just the back end, you could tell they have to poop, but they're seem to have trouble pooping.
0: I've seen it in a few, like, uh, neonates you know like young animals but typically they're pretty neonates that, yeah neonates,
2: yeah. not not adults, adults okay are just yeah. rock solid and once in
0: a while they'll have you can see the like the 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 urate pellet the white pellet kind of okay. st- stuck there or or and and usually i just kind of help them work it out but it's okay. i think that's probably because of uh you know like um feeding them rodents instead of lizards right you right, know. right. That, well
2: i'm wondering away. i was kind of wondering too is it well like rob knows i was preaching about this with like the python part or python when i was on is uh we're feeding them pinkies and chances are we're just grabbing pinkies out of the bin or we get them from a rodent source that probably picks them out of the bin so chances are these animals still have a gut full of milk And I can't imagine that that going through the python system with a python that already doesn't eat mammals, well, neonate or baby mammals to begin with, that, you know, when it does end up eating them, that that causes issues as far as constipation and bloating or diarrhea and some, you know, like we hear, I hear a lot with like the green pythons and stuff, you know, having prolapses and stuff, you know, to me, it just, it just sounds like a, I think it's just, rodent issues, but we won't know unless someone starts feeding like geckos or skinks to their tinier species. Right. Yeah.
0: I I know Casey Lazick was telling me when he first bred the pygmies and uh, he, he said like he tried and tried and tried and then he threw in a, a house gecko or something. The thing just nailed it, you know, just right off the bat. And he fed it, uh, geckos for a bit until it got to a certain size. And then it took rodents. No problem. I mean, right, adult right. Antaresia eat, eat rodents in the wild. We, we found right, a DOR right. children's Python up in Darwin area and it had a bolus. And so we squoze it out and it was a big rodent of some sort, you know, some sort right, of right, rat or something. But,
2: uh, yeah. so with the diet is the, uh, is the, I was talking to Nick a while ago and uh Nick was saying the pygmy bandit pythons are typically lizard eaters even to adult size. Is that true? I, I would think they'd be the same. Like mixed, rodents, it's whatever. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think they probably okay. start off. I was just curious. Day.
2: I remember him saying something about it.
0: Yeah. They okay. they do okay. they do come from a little bit more of a uh you know Harsh environment, I guess you could say. So maybe there's less rodents available in their natural area. So maybe they, I'm sure adults will take a lizard if they're given the opportunity. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, those are cool. I got to see those out in uh, Australia a few years back. Uh, The lucky man.
2: Those are, those are cool. cool. Those are uh, i'd have to I'd have to say those really as far as the different looks i've seen of them, well not different it's I love contrast animals like that, so mm-hmm. like the pygmy bandits with that bold pattern that's yeah. most of them seem to have I is just i mean mm-hmm. it's really cool that's why that's why Stimson eye is by far my favorite as yeah. far as antaresia they're just you know uh that's. I think that's why I thought it was appalling when they think that child or children's pythons are the same as Stenson's. and
0: Yeah, I'm just like, ridiculous. oh, okay. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I like
2: how that. I like how they they uh, those two species are identical, but like uh, all the the Curtis complex is all like 1.5 percent divergent from each other, but they de- they deserve four different species, yeah. you know, or <laughs> right. something like that, and yeah. yeah. I don't, it's me, sorry. Man. I don't mean to rant about this. I'm sorry.
0: No, no. I, you, you get me talking about Australian pythons. We could go all night. I'm sure. But Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh,
2: Dave likes Australian stuff too. So yeah, I think yeah. we could have a good little threesome
0: going on. <laughs> there you go. We'll have to save it for another day. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, Dave, you got any, uh, really, uh, exciting projects this year?
1: Um, well, um, uh, we're waking all the blue tongue kinks up in a couple of weeks. I'm always excited about that. Um, you know, every year I try to do something a little bit different, see if something weird pops out that makes me want to pursue another project. Um, got all our other little pythons downstairs. Like our woman has been breeding really well for the last month and a half. I think we have one very close to an ovulation. Everyone else is like building. Um, ball pythons are kind of hit or miss. I've got gravid females out there. I've got females with no follicles. I have females that are developing it's kind of all over. And the bows aren't looking too bad. I think we're pretty close on our first ovulation of the year. I just had a litter two weeks ago for an off-season litter with a female. Um, So, you know, there's kind of always stuff going on. um, But And then corn snakes, I get all the colubrid stuff woken up in a couple weeks also. They usually come up the same time as the skinks. So Mm -hmm. in about a month, it's going to be hell here because every day is going to be what's not breeding, what needs to be breeding. and (laughs) And you know what it's like breeding skinks. And when you got a lot of them, it is a lot of time of your day just getting rolling.
0: Yeah. Now, do do you have a a big fi- facility with like different rooms for different species types or groups or whatever?
1: Um. So what we have is um in the house we have certain rooms that we keep certain things. Um, we have a lower level to the house, so we kind of have that broken up for a few different things. Whether it's grow out animals for boa constrictors, um, you know, we got a room we have a lot of our Australian stuff. I got the other room where I tr- honestly keep my clubrids and my blue tongues in. seeing I cool them all together. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in the main warehouse, um, one half of the building is all boa constrictors. The back half of the building is all ball pythons. Um, Now, of course, air can sneak from side to side. There's nothing really stopping it. But for the most part, um, everything kind of has its own little space. Um, I, in the past, when I've had no space, have had multiple species in one room, and we're still successful to an extent. Um, But I know when I first got in the hobby, I bought a little bit of everything, which was too much, Um, jammed it all in a little room. and really wasn't successful with anything. Um, but then when I really started to make my focus on boa constrictors, um, just kind of figured it out that I was able to breed something, produce that first litter and that was it. But, um, yeah, a little bit all over the place. Um, I'm breeding children's pythons for the first time this year, just nothing crazy. And I, I got, uh, some striped spotted downstairs I'm pairing right now and they're building and they're getting into it pretty good. So, you know, every couple of years I try to get something new that I haven't worked with just for fun. Like rosy boas i've been slowly building up on for a couple of years but um yeah i just i'm a little addicted to everything so i, I try to have just a little bit of everything uh, yeah i don't know yeah, it's funner that way
0: too many cool things out there for sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> we had
1: a, a discussion uh i think
0: it'll be released uh here this coming week uh last week uh rob and i talked about different species that um should there be species that you just don't work with like Draco or something, you know, where they just don't do well in captivity or, or can we find a way to make them, you know, make them work or find a way? Cause ball pythons used to be the same way, you know, they were kind of the untouchable species. Nobody could get them to breed and they were very difficult. And Now they're the most like commonly bred python in the world, you know, so it's kind of one of those things, I guess. But. Yeah, no, I agree with well,
1: that with both species. Um, Go ahead,
0: I'm sorry. Oh no, I was I was just going to see if you guys were ready to fight. But <laughs> didn't yep, mean to cut I'm you. I'm ready.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, well, uh let's do this thing. Uh so we'll go ahead with the the coin toss. I believe uh David is going to be calling the coin toss. So um we're so we're let me introduce the uh topic here. We're going to we're going to be talking about the reptile industry. So there's kind of a, a bit of doom and gloom, um, from different sources online saying, you know, the reptile industry is dying and it's in its final s- stages of, of death and, and we should all abandon hope and give up. But, um, I, I, uh, think there's a, a good debate, you know, to be made on, on either side. So we'll go ahead and have that uh, fight. And I think, uh, we're going to do a little uh, tag team here. So. Uh, Dave and Will are both going to pick, uh, one of us to, to fight with, uh, on their side and then they'll, they'll pick which side they, they want. So I guess whoever wins the coin toss can either pick the side or their partner in, uh, the, 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 the fight. And then, uh, the other one gets to pick what side they defend or vice versa. So. All right. Well, go ahead and call it. <laughs> heads. It is heads. So. Alright. Do you wanna pick your side or pick your partner?
1: <laughs> um damn, I didn't think I was gonna win this. Um I'm gonna go with um The Hobby's Not Dead. Okay.
0: All right, so Will, who you wanna team up with?
2: Oh man. You know, Rob probably has the, I'll go with Rob. Rob has a pretty good insight on the industry. Cause it, I I think from working with pro exotics, So I think he might have a pretty, pretty good insight on a lot of this stuff. So good I choose Rob. <laughs> All right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. And then uh, as the winner of the coin toss, Dave gets to decide if he goes first, leads it out, or if he has, will go first. Will and Rob.
1: I'll let will start.
2: Ooh, okay. He starts. Oh, Okay. Well, I think for me, anyways, I don't know. I my more picking certain parts of the industry that I think we were slacking in, or we we should change, or look at a little bit differently. Unless Rob wants to go ahead and
3: start with something, which I don't mind. <laughs> well, I think yeah. From my perspective, this isn't. Uh this is good. This is sort of the form of the thing because it's, I guess, uh, is going to push me in a way that isn't necessarily my natural predilection on this. So I think the way that I would start is sort of by defining the terms, right? So to the extent that when people are talking about this, what they're talking about is saying sort of the the days of the uh, pyramid scheme almost, uh, or it could be you know, negatively categorized as sort of the py- pyramid scheme atmosphere and Um, either get rich quick or sort of uh, selling a dream um, that I think maybe some of that is dead, right? In the sense that people are seeing through some of that and saying like, okay, what's the real benefit to me from uh, just buying into something that you've already produced, right? Because invariably, as as we've seen with all these projects, right, there's a natural tendency on new people to go to the people that actually made it famous in the first place, right? And the only way, uh, at least over the course of the last 20, 25 years, that people that aren't the person that are, is known for that entity, right? The person either, if we go back far enough, right, with the reptiles magazine ads and Terry Dunham, right, selling his enterthristic Hondurans for $1,500, thir- you know, $1,000, whatever it was, um, if we're viewing it through that lens, if you got them from Terry, okay, that's the price, right? And sort of creates this idea in your mind that this is a real thing, Um but, if instead I got it from Dave, it doesn't even intrinsically upon receipt, it doesn't feel like quite the same thing, right It doesn't come with that uh the stamp of having come from Dave and I know heck, I mean, well you know you've seen it with the Bloods and short tails, right? A problem that's happened sort of throughout time has been like if it's a Barker approved project, then it has five five x value than if it's something that is equally if not more cool but isn't something that they're working with. That's been a thing for 20 years. That's not new, but maybe mm-hmm. people are more aware of that now. Maybe the, quote, industry has expanded enough that we're getting people that are more open to the to that reality and uh, just having more insight into that. And heck, I mean, shoot, if people are going to a, a reptile show and you, you go and you see, and even people who breed ball are... Are invariably walking by the tables of people who breed ball pythons because all of it is just replication. None, of, we're not at a point like ten or fifteen years ago where Amir could be at his table, and everything he has is stuff out of wild caught stuff that is nothing like what everyone else has, right? Mm. We're not. That's not where we're at right now.
2: Right, right. Yeah, I, the so I think I like... some
3: stuff out there. Yeah. Okay, I'm to say <laughs> there's a little, a couple little
2: feeders of... for you, Will. Yeah, I was gonna say a few things. I'd like to you know point out that you said too that I think on just the I don't know uh, like the um, like uh, you brought up the uh, uh, what what was it the um, uh, kind of betraying yourself in a certain way and I've noticed I wonder if that's more getting to become more of a detriment is some of the top tier you know breeders in the industry showing off this flashy lifestyle and then it just it just creates this false sense of, I don't want, I hate to say hope because I think some people look at it more realistic, but then you just got people when you're talking about animals who start getting this wild dream. Well, if I had these, this many animals, maybe I can, you know, do that, get this kind of lifestyle or something, you know, cause I've, you know, I've seen a lot of people, Especially last, well, during COVID, with the big boom and everything, the COVID breeders coming in and looking to, uh, you know, plunk down their 401k and all that into this, or you know, taking loans out on their house to try to get into this, and uh, I just that's a dangerous game to play, man. Especially if you had a snake and you want to go from a snake that you had ten, fifteen years ago to, I think I want to have. 50 or 100 snakes you know i think one of the craziest things i remember ever hearing was uh and it's probably still happens but i remember a while ago i was at a reptile expo and um this guy i never saw at a local show before i just start talking to and he um he goes yeah i had my first season and he said he had 25 clutches his first season i go holy shit you know some people might not you know apparently boutique is still two or three hundred that's crazy <laughs> but but you know but 25 i'm like jeez your first year and you're 25 clutches i get about 30 clutches and i'm i'm like no i can't do that, mm-hmm. that we're, we're speaking to someone like dave though who has like 200 boa litters you know five hundred ball Python clutches, <laughs> and he's gonna laugh at us for even mentioning this, but I think though I think though these are people too that just they go from zero to sixty like I mean really quick, and you know Dave knows i mean ball Python people are doing this really quick, there is no such thing as slow growing anything, and when it comes to ball pythons, that's something I've noticed too with the market is that it's shifted a lot more to where people. Don't even care to buy a neonate anymore. They'd rather buy a subadult or adult or a nearly adult animal for, you know, preferably the same as a baby's price range, but bigger animals. So there, there is no such thing as patience in this, and I, I, I think that's, that is, we're going through this cycle again that I'm sure all of us have seen where. You know, first it was the new genes, and then every new gene it was, you know, top tier, and everyone wanted to produce a million of them. Well, then that faded away. Then Kevin did the whole, you know, combining stuff, and that's when, all right, now we combine these genes. Now it doesn't matter what it is; it's worth ten thousand dollars, and it's still brown and black, right, or whatever it was. It didn't didn't matter, and you know, it could be a, you know. Like a spot, like uh, this, you guys may not know, but it's like a spot nose, uh, well, spot nose hinging woma. So it's like two of the lethal genes you put together in the super form. So you get a super wonky snake and, you know, that would still be worth $10,000 then. And so then that steadily went away. And then it became how many genes we can add into a snake. And then eventually the recessive thing became a thing. Now it's multi-recessive things and you start seeing these trends and I can't help but wonder, like, are we, are we getting to the end of it? You know, I, I only see one other route we could do with ball pythons and that's every route that every single reptile has taken. And that's selective breeding, you know, pick a route you like in a mutation and be like J and D or not J and D, J D. JD, uh, uh, you know with these antics you know be known for one particular thing and be really good at that one particular thing you know rather than trying to chase some multi-recessive clown project that you know and that's something i remember hearing back in the day too where a lot of people were talking about these eight or ten gene incomplete dominant combos being white with specs but these four or five recessive combos are starting to look the same too like I don't, people are telling themselves a sunset clown pied and it looks fantastic. I go, it looks like a Mojave pied, just <laughs> no pattern and kind of dingy colors and stuff. And don't get me wrong. I like the, I like all three of those jeans, but together they probably should never be put together in the first place, but <laughs> I don't know. I might have went off topic what Rob said.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No, you're you're good. So the one thing I want to toss out there, just because I do think it's so intrinsic and a problem, and probably something that we won't focus on being mostly snake, snake and lizard, but less, you know, uh, Doctor J notwithstanding, maybe um, the leopard gecko market is the one that I see most violative of what you mentioned, where everyone goes from zero to sixty, right? Like it's almost like, oh, I have a pet leopard gecko. And then it's, oh, I want to start breeding them. Whenever I hear about that, invariably the answer is, oh, I'm small time. I only have 50, you know, 50 eggs. And it's like, that's a hell of a lot of geckos for someone that is going into a market where there's definitely the market to uptake those, but not necessarily at that price point, especially in the absence of the infrastructure to support it from that Mm. person. Right. right? And it's just, I see that so much. And it, it really, Uh, Makes me sad, to be honest, is it's like that is intrinsically a problem that there's very little middle ground where it's like legitimately leopard geckos talking about selective breeding. There is huge potential for that. And there are people that are doing it. But like the a newcomer would be far better situated to spend more money and get one excellent pair to take in their own direction, in their own mindset. And it would be much easier to cultivate interest in that one select thing that was maybe, what, six or eight babies over the course of a year. But invariably, it's, oh, I have this handful of, you know, handful of pairings or whatever that easily turns into 50 or 60 uh, babies in a year. And there's, it's not a surprise in light of that, that almost invariably the life, quote, lifespan, lifespan within the hobby as an industry person or whatever of a leopard gecko breeder is a year and a half or two years.
0: Yep. Well, I, I think you guys came in hot. That was uh, some good punches there. (laughs) And, uh, and I mean, I I guess as as, you know, I'll I'll maybe throw in something real quick and then let Dave take over. But uh, I think while we're, we're defining things and I, I agree, you know, I think this thing is cyclical and we see this rise and fall of different trends, different um, and, and they all seem to circulate around making money rather than, the passion for the animals. I mean, I believe they start with the passion for the animals. I mean, I, I look at people like Kevin or Brian Barczyk or whatever, you know, they, they love the animals. There's no denying that. And they, and they're very excited and passionate about them and they're, and they're great, you know, at at promoting their, the things that they work with. But I think a lot, like you said, a lot of people get in for the wrong reasons. They see, oh, I'm going to jump in this pyramid scheme and I'm going to make lots of money. And then when they realize that's not the case, or when the, you know, people have less, um, superfluous money to spend on pets, then that kind of goes away. And I think it's kind of a, it actually strengthens the real hobby, which is the passion for the animals, wanting to share that with other people, wanting to show people how cool these animals are. And when those you know, car salesmen that got into this as an investment opportunity, get kind of cleaned out from the, the lull in the market, then that's when we can strengthen and and go back to kind of the roots of the thing. So I don't know, that's how I kind of respond to that. I don't know if you have something to add to that, Dave. All
1: right. Well, I'm going to start from the top and work my way down really quick. Um, so first off, um, so pyramid scheme, um, there's no doubt that you can make a comparison to everything being a pyramid scheme in life whenever it's uh, money exchanging hands, especially in stuff like this. Um, I, I'm not going to say it's kind, of like a, it's kind of like a dirty way of talking about a hobby because when you start saying things like that, it does kind of, I don't know, it's a dirty word in a lot of things when you're talking about business. Um, but I want to start from like the you know people coming in and kind of like what the difference over the years have been. Um, so we talk about people coming in and spending money or spending their 401k. Um, you know, putting everything into this. Um, here's the reality. Um, people open bars, people do a lot of things with their money if they believe in themselves. And some people believe that coming into this could be something that is beneficial for them, maybe from a financial end, and also maybe beneficial on a, I'm enjoying what I'm doing end of things. Um, now, I will say that the shelf life on people, I've always said it's around five years, because if you buy babies, it takes about three years to get your collection up to size. Um, one year of breeding, maybe you make some mistakes. And usually by the next year, you got to figure it out. And if you can keep it together for five years, you might have a fighting chance to get a decade out of it. Um, now for people that come in and fail, maybe from bad advice and things like that. Um, you know, you can give 10 different people $10,000 and they're going to all be in different places in the hobby right now. So, you know, you got to keep that into, um, um, one of the reasons that this just doesn't work for everybody. Um, I know a lot of people that came in with nothing that are very successful. I know people that came in with a ton of money. Half of them are gone. Half of them are still doing it. Um, and you know, I do think that selling success is not a bad thing. Um, you know, the reality is, is from the outside looking in, people don't want to think this is just a labor job, but the reality is this is a labor job. Um, you're constantly cleaning. You're constantly doing maintenance. Um, you're constantly trying to figure out ways to do better. And usually the people that don't, again, will fall off and fail. Um, you know, I think it's individual cases. And, you know, I think one tough thing about this conversation too, which, you know, establishing the ground rules leading up to it. Um, you know, are we only talking ball pythons? Um, You know, when I look at different species in the industry, um, they're worth a lot more money today than they were eight years ago. And they're holding pretty steady. And one thing I have noticed in the industry over the years is where gecko species like leopard geckos will bring people in because it's easy. Um, Now that we have ball pythons figured out, people can come in easily and work with those species. Usually when the sales slow down on that species that was their training wheels, they tend to go to all these other species: rhino, rat snakes, um, smaller um, pythons from Australia, maybe a lizard species that they like. Um, you know, I don't think it's always the best idea for someone to jump in the hobby and go after a very difficult species because that can be very, very discouraging. Um, think of all the people that bought bullets in the 2000s and failed with them and either killed them or just weren't successful breeding them. Um, I feel like it's only been the last like five to seven years that there's been success, and it's only because we've actually looked at the function of the animal, how they are in the wild, and now that we've actually paid attention, we're like, oh, well, this is what we've been doing wrong. And there's a lot of people that are doing it. Um, We just had the clutch in Kansas City, Missouri that a breeder um, had. William will name drop him in a second. I always forget names. Um, But again, it was a difficult species that a lot of people gave up on. Um, But no, a couple people paid attention. Ari did a lot of really great research in the wild, figured out some stuff that made it easier for people. Um, but you know, as a whole, I think this hobby's always had the up and down. I think ball pythons are usually the one thing that gets the most attention. And I always say that the highs and lows of the ball python usually affect the rest of the industry. Now, in a positive way, when us ball python meals or ball python people stop making money, we put it into other parts of the hobby. Um, and I think that goes a long way. And honestly, a lot of the sales I'd make on different species I'm working with a lot of times is funded with ball python money. Um, same thing, you know, I always argue with shows, you know, we argue there might be too many shows right now and, you know, we don't have to get into that argument on this one. But, um, you know, a lot of these shows exist because of ball python breeders, which gives opportunities for other breeders to sell anything that they want, any rare species, so on and so forth. Um, Mm -mm. One more thing, um, you know, again, going back to, you know, the strength of the hobby right now, um, you know, let's just say Woma pythons. I feel like four years ago, five years ago, Woma pythons were very difficult to sell. Um, Price was pretty low on my table a lot of times or 150 online. And then during COVID, when we had all these new people come in and want to be a part of the hobby, they went after these rare, unique, nostalgic animals in the hobby, like Womas, like Doomerul boas and there was none available so the price shot up and that market stayed there for a little while and there's always going to be a different factor on what's going to bring a market up and down and economy could have something to do with it but again i'm looking at a lot of these more rare species or more random species that you just don't see a lot of anymore and they're still holding very true they're still selling very regularly i think that um when we get on facebook and social media in my opinion does kind of hurt this nowadays compared to what it used to but on social media when there's all the doom and gloom posts all day um, two thousand seven, two thousand and eight, we pretty much would go on Fauna and see seven new collections up for sale. Um, same thing on Day. there'd be collections up for sale. Again, we're not always gonna succeed at this. And the reality, and you know, I'm sure Rob will agree, um, if we all did succeed, um, we would overproduce for what the demand in the United States are for animals. And then hopefully, you know, maybe you're clever, you're able to export certain things. But, you know, the exportation of stuff too has to be a factor in this. Um black milks went up to hundreds of dollars after being a under hundred dollar animal, but that was because the um, Asian market took onto them. Um, so even with blue tongue skinks, um, when we had the surge in the United States and people in Hong Kong were buying them, um, you know, that brought the price up. Um, the demand was there. So there's always a lot of factors, but I will say that the more, you know, outside of maybe boa constrictors, um, crested geckos, um, bearded dragons, ball pythons, Um, and you know, I'll say corn snakes too, there's still enough of those being produced. Um, you know, those are the markets I feel like you're going to see the most of a roller coaster in. And a lot of these other markets, I find that the roller coaster has been pretty steady for you guys, if not really kind of better for you guys right now. Um, so, you know, I don't know if the market's dead and, you know, when you bring up all pythons, you know, you kind of made the point I wanted to make, um, you know, first it was chasing imports and that was the main thing. We all just wanted that brand new project to develop ourselves. Then it was, okay, cool. Well, look what happened when I put these three together. Wow, reduce the pattern down to nothing and look at the white up the side. That was exciting. Then there was a new norm and then there was a new norm and then there was a new norm. Um, you know, Every few years we decide a new direction that we're going to take ball pythons and sometimes it's guided by either one force in the hobby, that one guy that everybody looks up to that maybe does something that you couldn't think of yourself. Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I think more people in a market is better because you get more directions to go in I can't always know what I want to do for breeding, but when somebody does the right breeding that I like, well, now I have a direction. Um, and you know, a lot of this is kind of copycat stuff and sometimes we get lucky along the way to make some cool animals. But, um, you know, again, too, with these discussions, I really think it all starts with, you know, mainly ball pythons and how that market's doing. Cause again, the reality is, is that ball python money spreads its way all over the hobby. Um, you know, everybody gets a taste of that, whether they believe it or not. And, um, I think that's something to keep into consideration. But again, other market species right now, I'm not really, I'm seeing hognose flying off the shelves. My buddy Junior is killing it every show. Um, You know, I'm seeing a lot of people sell a lot of stuff. I just think that we're hung up on ball pythons right now like we always are. I think that we got away from making certain pets and we've neglected the fact that the pet market's always going to be there. We need new animals for the pet market now. And to make new animals for the pet market without making some of the old classics means what you thought was investable is no longer investable. And that is the truth. Um, so sometimes in ball pythons, I think that fads happen, and I think fads will affect the species as a whole until somebody creates a new fad that we all need. And like William said, you know, recessive's been king for a long time. Everybody said recessive was safe. Recessive's not safe anymore. Everybody has a collection completely built around recessive. So all they have to do is add one codon and sheen to a recessive and it's treating a codon like bringing it to your normals back in the day. So that's also affecting the market when we're all chasing the same thing. So again, I don't, um, you know, I always have a lot of faith in the ball python market because I've seen so many crashes over the years. Um, you know, we saw bananas go from $15,000 down to $1,000 in just a year or two. We saw the GHI follow it and I didn't even think it should have. Um, But at the same time, simultaneously, they went down in price. And then we've also seen a lot of projects. And Desert Ghost is the best example that was in the industry for over 10, 20 years. Nobody wanted it. Kevin McCurley did some cool stuff. A couple other guys stuck with it, made some combos. And it was just kind of like, eh. Now, literally, if you don't have Desert Ghost in your collection or Desert Ghost Hypo or Desert Ghost Clown Hypo in your collection, you don't even have a relevant collection in the modern day ball python world. So... I always think there's a lot of factors in all this. Um, you know, I hate to shit on the market because I've seen it come up and down so many times. Um, but I will say that I do think there's going to be a pretty big correction in ball pythons based on some projects that just aren't what they used to be. And the fact that there's so many new people in doing similar projects right now that the assumption, like um, Rob said, that you're going to create something that somebody already created and somebody's going to want it, sometimes that's not how it works. Um, you know, Sometimes you know, that'll give you a little direction, but if you're always... Copying somebody else, you're not going to be successful. So in my opinion, don't follow the trends. You need to be a trendsetter. And trendsetters always have a moment in ball pythons.
2: Okay. Now I got something to say about that. <laughs> so uh, Tons here. just, Tons here. just uh, say what again? Okay. There's a ton here. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll okay. have to go for a while. <laughs> okay. So Dave, what you said about the species, I get that. But the thing is I think the species is just going to be a delayed market cr- well market dip. I won't say market crash, but a lot of the miscellaneous stuff is going to take longer because generally speaking a lot of the people getting into this miscellaneous stuff or at least people who are getting either larger quantities or bigger groups of them are typically ball python people or people who do other common species that are like well maybe in their head if I get some something rarer or something different that'll help me out. So a lot of times that'll be a lot, a little bit of a delay. And most of the time, what happens when people do that is, especially if you come with the mindset of a ball Python, you know, a male breeds in five months or a female breeds in 12 months, you know, and people want to take that same mentality and try to bring it over to a different species. And frankly, you end up wrecking a lot of those species or sometimes it's delayed because you do have people who listen. So some people it's either going to take them longer or they're going to kill them all by getting them too fat or just, you know, just wrecking them. So I think a lot of that other species is going to be a delayed, you know, and you're seeing some of it dip down now. It's not that it's not, it's just, it's more steady. Cause I think a lot of that rush were ball python people who are getting that stuff, you know, now it's starting to peter off. And a lot of them already have it because the, the thing is with the species, and I tell people this, you know, it's not a species that's going to help fix the market. The problem is with the species, when you start putting too much emphasis on one species and everyone produces that one species, you're going to crash the market a whole lot faster because the harsh reality is a savu is a savu, a white lip is a white lip, a scrub python is a scrub python. Uh, well, obviously different species, but There's not different morse and that's what's given the ball pythons and so many of these other animals, you know, longevity in the hobby and so much more financial gain is because of the morse. Let's face it, you can get a lot of one species, just some different paint jobs. You know, a lot of these other species you can't. So if, you know, if I bred white lips and 10 other people bred white lips, well, then the market's probably going to go to shit relatively quick so and that and that's just, you know any species like Antaresia would be another one you know you know people would want to get antaresia until they have to feed a bunch of antaresia babies and they're just going to be like well this isn't a ball python why would i do this you know or <laughs> something something along that line and frankly you know a lot of the, the problem i i have with a lot of times the ball python people getting a lot of this stuff is you know A lot of times it ends up becoming, you know, they'll treat that kind of stuff as one species, right? And that's what I think complexes are interesting, is why all these different animals evolved to become what they are today. But a lot of new people who get into them, especially with that ball python mentality, tend to, let's, just like the boas, Dave, they just fuck it up. They go, there's only one boa, or they just don't care, and they breed it all together. That's why in some ways I'm kind of glad the anteresia morse aren't here because guess what? They would magically all become one species and everyone would breed all of them together. And then you got people like Justin who's dedicated 20 years of his life to that species going like, wow, we had such a prime opportunity to do some really cool stuff. And everyone goes and fucks it up, you know, pisses in the punch bowl, if you will. So I I don't necessarily think that getting into different species is going to save you. Unless you're, I wouldn't even say even if you're passionate about it. But if you like a cer- a different species, makes it easier to sell because you speak differently when you're excited about something compared to something you're just you know trying to just get rid of because you're tired of it. You know, I'm sure all well, I'm sure Justin and uh, Rob, you've been on the phone with Nick or something like that. You know, when he gets <laughs> to talking to you, he you know he gets you excited about whatever species it is. You know, there was reason for it if you're passionate about it it makes it easier to sell but the thing is if you just go into it with the mindset of these the morph aspect of it when a lot of these no no other species has morphs like ball python so they're you almost can't equate them to being the same you know and like i said i think the markets will dip even further with other species i just think it's going to be a bit more delayed for a few reasons either people get them and wreck the species or the people who do listen, it's just going to take longer because it's going to take them a while to get them up to size. Uh oh, do we lose Dave? I didn't mean to piss you off, Dave.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, so Will, the uh, the first thing I'll say, just just for clarity and you know to be on the same page with this, I'm the only person in the world that Nick doesn't keep on the phone. So now I've talked Uh-oh. to him. I think I've talked Sorry. to him three or four times for a combined like twelve minutes. So I'm I'm the one person in the world that has that situation, oh, so I can't relate. Sh- Sorry, it's You tell them
2: to shut up and just. <laughs> I don't even like pythons. I'm a quadruped and bone guy. Yeah,
3: I don't uh, know. Maybe maybe that's it. It's intrinsic mm-hmm. in there somewhere. I don't know. Um, uh, so I guess we'll continue a little bit in the. Uh, in the interim i know how that certainly i uh feel for dave on this it's happened to me um i guess the the thing that i would first say is that when you mention okay if there are actually 10 clutches of white lips out there that they might be quote less cool or whatever um i think there's some something intrinsic to that too where the fact that they're no longer as unattainable or as like oh i'll be seen as the cool game if 10 people in the u.s produce them in a given year then maybe it seems easier so there's less of that appeal that it's this challenge and I'll be special for having done it, right? And right, that's right. obviously not everyone has that viewpoint, but I do think there's some aspect of that. Um, and certainly, so there was a ton here from what Dave said and mostly I, I'm aligned with them. And I think actually until the end when he gave us our uh, a big uh, critical point. So I agree with Dave that the whole situation with people dipping into 401ks or putting a mortgage on their house, uh, to buy reptiles isn't new. I mean, shoot, the, I think the first time I saw it was in 2004 at Daytona, talking with the guy who just gotten a, a second mortgage on his house to buy ball pythons. And who knows, maybe <laughs> if he'd picked the right thing, maybe that would actually have turned out really well. And maybe it did. I, d- I don't even know the in, you know the specifics or how it went for him or whatever, because uh, you'd be on the very front end of all that stuff. Uh, so definitely, yeah, not unique or new, but um, I do, you know, so I take that point really well. Um, I agree with Dave totally that both reptiles and heck, you were mentioning the trouble with rodents and all that stuff, all of those things. It's like being a farmer. It's, it really is the labor it's showing up every day. It's really a test. If you have success or not is going to be defined by whether you can have that mentality of showing up to work every day, because that's really what it takes. It's not that it's hard. I mean, you have to maybe have some intrinsic sense of it or at least be open to reading your animals and say hey what is it that you're telling me as opposed to you know it's not uh i would say baking a cake except i live at altitude so that doesn't even work right, right you right. just follow the, the non-altitude recipe it doesn't work um but it's really it's a test of your own perseverance and your willingness to put in that labor so i think that's a great point from dave there um i also totally agree that there's still interest in different things and so fundamentally i think what we're talking about now is sort of these the big ticket items and the question of quote investment and that sort of atmosphere. I mean, heck, people have been keeping reptiles for a century in captivity more than that, I'm sure. But in terms of like easily recorded in the United States, this is what they're doing. Um, and it, there's an interest in different things or more difficult things. That's definitely the case. Um, and I do think to Dave's point that what when someone sits there, at the reptile show with their table full of ball pythons and even the people who love ball pythons don't stop um the natural incentive is one of two things either you're, to dave's point right either you're going to get out entirely or you're going to go into something else i do think that's that's totally the case and there has been it's it's been fascinating over the last 20 years like 20 25 years ago just based on the content that was available it was far more common for people to sort of be exposed to a breadth of things and then pick a narrow lane and go forward in that, right? So it would be, I'm aware, Kevin McCurley is aware of all the snakes in the world, or at least, you know, I mean, heck, read O'Shea's book, there's a heck of a lot of them, but aware of 40% of the snakes that are in the world and chooses a lane and goes down at Brian, same way. Um. So that, you know, there's that path. Subsequently, because of the uh, success and sort of as Dave talked about, sort of the lifestyle of some of the the really notable or successful, quote, you know, successful, particularly in a business sense, folks who are selling it as a lifestyle. There have been a ton of people who joined the reptile hobby who only know those sort of common items. They didn't come from a breadth and then narrow down. They came from this super narrow uh, exposure. And then maybe when they're either based on success in that, uh, causing them to spread their wings into different things or the lack of success saying, Hey, I, I love reptiles, but this clearly isn't working. Let me try something else. Um, you have these people who have come in from narrow and are only now seeing the broad universe, right? And there is definitely growth potential there because again, there's, you know, what, 5,000 different uh, snake species or what it's squamates and then it's 1,500 serpents or whatever it is, right? Um, the I really... This is the second show in a a row that I've mentioned that. I really should look and define that figure so I can reference it appropriately. Um, Something to note for next week. Okay, cool. Um, But, uh, yeah, no, I agree that, you know, social media, full of doom and gloom. That's sort of its intrinsic nature. That's not unique to reptiles. That's sort of how people are on there for whatever reason. Don't love it. I mostly avoid it. You know, cultivate uh, your exposure for sure. Um, Right. And I I agree that, you know, failure with the hard stuff is part of the allure, right? That, Dave, another great point. You know, I totally agree. Um, and I think the, heck, so two more things. The in, You said, Dave, that the investable is no longer investable. Totally agree. There are definitely different things out there. It's just the, if we're approaching sort of this discussion of saying, like, the things that are known to be the, in, quote, investment quality animal. Yeah, I think that's the stuff that we're really... Um, questioning here, because in as I say, people have kept reptiles for a century. I've, you know, the, all of this has no bearing on whether I will keep reptiles. My ability to sell reptiles will not affect whether I keep reptiles. Not at all. And they're, I'm definitely not unique in that. Uh, finally, some of the stuff, if we just talk about it, say like, heck, bananas. You talked about the the market uh, situation with banana. That's a cool snake, man. That is, someone just walks up to the table. They, there's no sales pitch. That thing looks cool. A pied, same thing. Someone who doesn't know reptiles, that's a cool looking animal. And that hasn't changed. It's just sort of the all this extra baggage that we're bringing with it. Finally, I would just say there's there's definitely a market for if you like what other people don't like, right? You know, like in the sense of there's you're there's less competition if you're out there in this space doing doing your own thing. And that's really, I think, maybe the The part when we say or if we're talking about is the quote industry having a problem to the extent it means doing what everyone else is doing. Yeah, probably. But if people then have opened their mind to all these different things and are willing to like what other people don't like, I think there's a ton of growth there.
0: Yeah, I want to jump in just with an example from my own experience, you know about 25 years ago i i really got into carpet pythons kind of discovered them you know as i was looking into the australian reptiles and and just fell in love with them um when i was buying my first jungle carpets you know they were a couple hundred bucks but nothing too terrible but um as i found out later they were just coming off of their huge wave of popularity and kind of hitting that trough. So I kind of got them on the downward curl. And by the time I raised them up and and bred them, they were kind of surging again, you know, coming up on the, on the wave. And so I was able to sell them very easily, very quickly and, and uh for, for good money, you know, so it was kind of like, but then, but then a few years later, I saw that they kind of dipped in price and they weren't selling as quickly and things like that. And I think anytime you're in, in. This, uh, working with something you love because you love it, not because of its market value. You're going to see that you know, peaks and waves. And maybe you don't breed as many that year, you know, that they're in the trough. And then you breed more when they come, you know, they're riding that wave. But I, I do think that it's, it's very important to have a champion, you know, for that animal. And I think. If you're kind of behind the scenes and you're quiet and nobody knows about you, you know, you're, the animals you're championing probably aren't going to get the limelight they deserve. Um, whereas if you put yourself out there, make YouTube videos, hype them up. You know, I, I think about uh, all the benefits I've gotten from Morelia Pythons Radio talking about how cool inlands are. When I first saw inlands, I thought they were kind of ugly coastals because I would just seen them in pictures. And I, I saw, saw some in person. I'm like, this is a completely different animal than I thought it was. And then I got them in hand and I, I, you know, brought some over from Europe. They were fantastic. Calmest carpet. They'll just, you know, sit, you know, they're, they're, they're the perfect pet carpet python in my opinion. And, and after, you know, 10 or so years of, of Morelia python's radio. Kind of singing their praises, they've kind of become a lot more popular, and, and my waiting list for inland carpets is, you know, quite long right now. So, I, you know, I think that championing and and sticking with the project even when it's in its trough, you know, it's is is worthwhile as well. And I think, I guess, my my kind of point on this is that's kind of the true hobby, and so I don't think that will ever die because there's going to be some kid that just loves reptiles just like we do. They don't know why, they just do, and they love what they love, and they don't care what's popular or expensive or not expensive. And some of the coolest reptiles are not expensive and they're, you know, looked at as trash species by people trying to make money, but they could be the coolest species in the world, and you can get a lot of you know benefit out of keeping and breeding those. And who knows, maybe if the imports stop, those things will shoot up in price, and that kid that just had that passion will all of a sudden make all this money because of something they love. But, you know, I think like Rob said, we're going to keep them, whether they're worth anything or not, you know, it's just kind of the the passion in us. Go ahead, Dave.
1: So do you hear me? Okay. All right. So, um, you know, and here's the thing. And again, you know, when you're working with anything that's alive, there's not a passion there you can't put it in the closet and forget about it. So, you know, where some of us do make the assumption or the stereotype that some people come in for the money. Um, again, those people never make it in my opinion. Um, you know, if they can't do the day job, they're not gonna get the paycheck. Um and you know, again, the toughest thing about these interview or these conversations is there's always so many different variables in every species we can talk about. Um, you know, it's kind of where I'm like, man, we should really just focus on maybe like the ball pythons and their effect on the rest of the industry a little bit. That's where I'll probably argue um through this. do we just lose them too? Um but yeah, so here's the thing. So first off, Will, you made the comment about morphs coming into a species and you don't want anybody muddying up the waters based on morphs. And I understand that, but also you don't really have any control over what people do after an animal leaves your house. Um And when it comes to mutations and the Australians have proved it, and I always make um, blue tongue skinks as the example, the crossing of Easterns and um Northerns in different mutations is common practice over there. And I'm sure in other Australian species, it's probably pretty common practice on the cross things so they don't look at it as a bad thing. Over here where those kinds of things are sought after, you want it to be pure. Same thing with like dwarf boa constrictors. You know, I know people that want pure Costa Ricans, pure Hondurans, like everything's got to be pure. Um, and then you get some people that are just very morph motivated and say, man, if I put this T positive Argentine with this other animal and then maybe breed it back again, what am I going to get? And, you know, again, they're mutations. Um, I don't find it a problem when people are mixing mutations. Um, you know, in and constrictors, it's kind of just common knowledge that most stuff is going to be hybrids, especially if you're in Colombian mutations. And when people buy into it, they don't really think about it that way. Um, so, you know, every one of these projects, every one of these species, it's always going to be treated differently. Um, you know, that's, again, up to you as management on your own projects and your own business. Um, but again, you know, even, you know, like Justin said, man, people want your stuff that you're producing. You got a waiting list and that's not going to change. Um, and you know, me with skinks, you know, I got into skinks cause I thought they were an amazing animal. I thought they were a good alternative than a bearded dragon as a beginner pet, easier diet, more extreme temperatures. Um, in my opinion, I think they handle a lot better too. And for a long time, they were $75 and they were $125 and they were $150. And then the variable, Marchek goes to Australia. He goes to Joe Ball's house. We see all these mutations we'll never have, but we always assume we'll get everything. Um, we then all of a sudden see Brian talking about him on snake bites weekly. Everybody wanted skinks, and you remember that market. People were selling normals for four fifty. Some people were marking them up to $800, $900, and people were buying them. Um, it all came down to a supply and demand. A demand was created overnight unexpectedly. And for people who had stuck it out with that species, fem, um, Ray Gerge, guys that put in 25 years, were so fortunate for those 20 years of nobody giving a shit about what they were doing to suddenly selling out to everybody. And they had a couple of really great years. And then I hate to say things leveled out and there was a lot of variables again within that species. But, you know, like I said, I, I think the most follow the market in this whole industry will always be ball pythons. I think ball pythons are always going to have these crazy extreme highs and lows. It's gonna be stressful um, I think some people are gonna find it comical uh, because they think they're right because they said things were gonna crash but you know again it's all supply and demand um and you know again we don't you know that market again reinvents itself that market never says okay it's over they say cool well I'm gonna try this really quick and hope for the best or I'm gonna try this really quick or hey I'm gonna try this and even though it doesn't look good, I'm gonna talk about it so fucking much you're gonna want it anyways. Um, so like I said, a lot of variables and all this kind of stuff, a lot of species variables and all this. And I really think everything comes to supply and demand. And again, I mean, there's a lot of other correlations within the economy you can put against what we're doing in our industry. When the stock market's strong, our industry is strong. When the stock market's weak, our industry's a little weaker. Um, you know, there's so many different things, again, variables that are going to put this market in a bunch of different directions. Um, and you know, one of another thing that, you know, maybe it's a whole debate in itself, what have we been saying for 20 years? What's the next ball python? What's the next ball python? What's that next species? Everyone thought it was going to be blood pythons for a while when you saw Tracy Barker in her galleries every day showing new mutations. Um, you know, other snake-wise boa constrictors had a chance, but that is a species that is larger. Not everybody can work with. Um, you know, again, variables. You know, there's a million mutations in um, retics. They are beautiful. Can everybody handle a retic? No. So even though that is a, a market that has a million mutations, it's not a strong market because of it um, where other muta- or other species give them a lot of mutations. Crested geckos the last five years of the hobby are everything Um You gave crested geckos true mutations and you suddenly saw crested geckos selling for $37,000 for two simple mutations put together and people bought them. I watched a guy make over six hundred thousand dollars at a single show selling only crested geckos. I called Pete Callup and asked him what his best day ever in Boas with ball pythons were. I hit up everybody, thinking there'd be like a number close to it, a third at best on a best weekend ever with a customer come over to their house afterwards to spend a lot of money. So again, you know, morph motivated for sure. Other world or other markets overseas will affect what's going on here. And you know, if you look to and you know what the world markets like. Um, you know, it all kind of all starts with the United States a lot of times. Um, you know, and that's why I always argue that Europe has some of the best looking of everything because they cherry picked the best things we made for years, brought them in and only bred the best of the best. And that's why you saw some of the better leopard gecko projects over there being done. That's why some of the pastel lineages of boa constrictors and like purple sharp albinos look better there. Nothing compared to what we're making here. Um, you know, they had good ingredients and they made better stuff. And again, the crested gecko market, it's because the Asian market, the Korean market went nuts. They got them, they have them now, and they're not buying them like they were. Um, so, you know, like I said, there's always going to be a roller coaster and there's always going to be a variable. And, you know, sometimes you can make guesses on markets. Um, you know, the reality is if you focused on the Madagascar market and when you knew it was going to shut down certain species, if you had those species laying around and maybe held onto them for five months, they're probably worth five times what they were when you first got them in. Monkey tail skinks in this industry. Every time they rediscover a new island with monkey tail skinks, the price plummets because there's all of a sudden monkey tail skinks everywhere. Then we can't, I, mean, I don't want to say take all of them, but take so many that suddenly we can't take them anymore. And then all of a sudden you see monkey tail skinks for $12 to $16 to $1,800. Um, so, you know, like I said, this market just always finds a way, in my opinion. I don't think this market will fail, but I do think people within the market will fail because that's just what businesses.
2: Okay, so you led me down uh, a bunch of rabbit holes. I kind of want to chit chat about. Um, so this might be something Rob might know b- more about. So um, first of all, I think we should be more concerned about what we're crossing into what, because you know, with a lot of these legend, you know, new, the laws and everything, you know, bans and all these different species, and. Um, you know, like Burmese pythons, you know, being banned in Georgia and stuff like that. It was because of, I guess they were worried about the worm that's in their lung chilling and harming native species. That, you know, when a 18 foot berm has a worm and it goes into a, or gets transferred into like a 12 inch snake, then it's a little bit different, you know, or something like that. But with that, is my question more towards Rob, because you might know more about this. In, probably any of us three but like so if we just you know like bob clark for instance crossing a bunch of ball pythons with retics and berms what happens if you you can't sell it to georgia at that point right or you can't send them to florida because they're at least half what happens if we start getting all these crosses well then we're going to crash a market if we can't send them anywhere because we decided the willy-nilly this is becoming a hybrid talk but i promise it could crash a market pretty quick if we can't sell these animals because oh, it's three quarters berm or it's half berm. Well, let's just band it all then because we just can't we don't know what it is. We'd rather be safe than sorry, right? At least I'm sure that's what those states are gonna think when they, you know, look if they look into
1: Can I say one thing on that really quick?
2: Yes. Yeah. Go ahead, Dave.
1: I'm sorry. So and you're breaking up a little bit, but um so here's the thing. I don't think anything in government will ever be like, Hey, look, this is a 95% this it's banned. My biggest concern with that would be when they say pythons are banned in every state and anything that falls under a Python category falls in that category. Um, so, I mean, I keep that in consideration because you know, I think that, I mean, you remember the papers that were wrote on, um, green anacondas, um, that broke it up into what three species. And that was one of the arguments made when we had the Lacey thrown run us the first time around. And, you know, too, with Burmese pythons, you could have said that market was dead, but when they got limited to only selling their animals within their own state, a normal Burmese python was whatever that guy in the state wanted to charge because he had no competition anymore. I saw albinos at the show for 450, 650 in Tennessee. Before that, you sell them for 125 on a table. So, you know, laws will, of course, affect us, but, but it doesn't how necessarily that, move.
2: How, how long will that actually last? That might be good for one season, but then your limit, you're going to cut your market quick or fairly quick by doing that so that's a good short-term resolution but it's not something that's gonna you know get you by for the next 20 or 30 years you know that's only gonna work and then obviously state by state it's gonna vary too because you know certain states there's probably gonna be less people who are interested in that stuff than others you know compared to like missouri to california or something like that so i don't necessarily think that's that's true you know that. It'll, it might work for a little bit, but it's certainly not a long-term uh, thing.
1: So let's just say that guy in Tennessee that decided to stick it out in his own state, he might not have realized that his animals were even worth as much as they were. And I can say that based on the fact that also a lot of those big constrictor breeders ran to Texas because their biggest market was in Texas. There was a lot of sales coming out of that state for these animals. And then when they all got down there and their market was so oversaturated, there was a failure there and they went out of business and a lot of them did. Um, and honestly, too, if you look at the burn market, just with what that roller coaster has been, so you had them get banned. They, You thought they were gone forever. You suddenly were the only guy in your state. You made a fortune because you had no competition. Yes, probably over a five, six-year period after that, you would have competition and then it'd be a different game, but the laws got changed and they didn't have to worry about that. But if you go back to 2008 or even nine and say, hey, did you know there's going to be pied berm someday and we're going to charge $15,000? People would have thought you were crazy because they would have thought they wouldn't be able to sell that animal if they had that animal, but everything changed. And the thing is, is laws are always out of your control. Um, you know, try to find things that you think might slip through the cracks, but um, you know, again, they could say Python and man, we lose all our pythons.
2: Well, yeah, I could see that. I don't know. I, I think it's just, if ball pythons, I think it'd just be harder to go after. And so that's why I'm wondering, well, if they're hybrids, wouldn't it just be easier just to get rid of, or just stop it there compared to just, you know, banding. I just, I don't know. I guess I don't see the ball python I see that being more likely than them banding ball pythons outright, you know, at least in my mind. But as I said, I think Rob might probably be able to speak more on that than I would. It was just something I had, I came to mind when I was seeing Bob putting like a berm ball back to a berm or back to a ball python or something. I was like kind of curious how that would play out. Like if you were to send that animal to Florida, you know, I probably would assume you couldn't, but.
3: Yeah, that's an interesting legal question, right? And it's going to presumably vary by state where it's both in terms of. legally, and in terms of enforcement, for sure. Um, the interesting thing is that if you're talking about things that are Endangered Species Act listed, hybrids of endangered species that are listed so you can't sell them across state lines, um, those actually are not protected because they're hybrids. So they're no longer the endangered species. So the most common context for that that you see is the Cyclura lewisi, the Grand Cayman iguana hybrids. So, uh, some of those that are actually sold as hybrids are actually not. This has been, so there's a, um, there have been various projects over time where folks have had, uh, been able to take blood samples. And then it turns out, oh, actually, what it, what I bought as hybrids are actually not hybrids. They're, they're pure Grand Cayman iguanas. And, um, at least one person then alerted, uh, the federal fish and wildlife. About that, and they gave and took them. Uh, So that that was kind of funny Um, (laughs) out out of that whole deal. So that uh, in the endangered species context, the the way the law is written, it's actually legal um, to sell something that would be illegal if it wasn't a hybrid um, because of that. But in terms of what you're talking about with state by state legislation in terms of banning different forms of animals and things. Yeah, that's that's going to be hyper specific, so I I couldn't give uh, feedback on that. But it definitely made me think of it when you just mentioned sort of the the legalities of hybrids question. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one from the record book.
0: Galops kind of fall under that too, right? The Galapagos tortoises—they could have them because they were hybrids, and yeah, um,
3: yeah. Yeah. So if they are hybrids, so they then are- you can sell them for sure. Yeah.
1: Does anybody know how it works with tegus? Because, you know, that's definitely a species that those rules are starting to bleed into the neighboring states of Florida. Um, Is there any rules in and out with hybridization with those?
3: So in that case, I think probably it's going to be like what you mentioned, Dave, where that for the most part, and I don't know the specifics, you know, either in Florida or across those states um, as to how the legislation is written. But in general, I would assume that's probably more likely to go to the um, general level or even above that in terms of saying what that ban looks like, particularly in local municipalities, right? I know uh, Chris Painchab is not <laughs> not the first uh, reptile keeper who lives in Corpus Christi, Texas, and they have some pretty, uh, pretty egregious, at least from a sort of captive husbandry side law in terms of particular. So I think all Boyd snakes are prohibited within the, the city of Corpus Christi um which is which is pretty crazy and isn't it gus renfro used to live down there and that actually caused him to to get out of keeping reptiles a famous boa breeder right was was living there and um either that law changed and he wasn't aware of it or whatever but uh there came a day where there was awareness around that and he had to get rid of all of his animals because of that not even state level but being in texas otherwise an open state but that particular municipality uh has a pretty draconian view of the whole thing where you keep colubrids. So there's there's a handful of colubrid breeders down there, but, but that's about it.
1: Yeah. Houston is the same way. Houston has an eight foot rule. Anything that can exceed eight feet is illegal in the County. Uh, I don't remember what the name of the County is, but that are regulations you'll see at any Houston show you go to. I'm scared we're getting off topic, by the way.
3: (laughs) Well, I can,
0: I can maybe bring us back on, on topic a little bit uh, with, uh, I think something that, indicates the strength of the market and the the reptile industry as a whole is is all the the supporting products you know you got your haging manufacturers lighting feeders you know all sort all sorts of different aspects of the support industry um and and I think Honestly, that, that helps strengthen our industry as a whole and makes it harder for legislation to get rid of it. Because when they see the amount of money, you know, not just on the reptiles themselves or, or, you know, that whole concept of, of, uh, blurring lines with legal and illegal, you know, imports and things like that. But when they can say, no, look at this industry, look at all this money that's being made, uh, in the sale of caging or, or food feeders or whatever. Um, I think that really, really shows that this industry is not going away. It's only becoming stronger. You keep seeing new innovations, new, you know, the, the new, uh, lighting systems that are coming out where you can have, you know, a gradual light <laughs> appear, you know, the Arcadia lighting stuff and, um, just different innovations and different, uh, things coming products. I mean, you've got the whole crested and, and other, you know, rachidactylus type geckos being surrounded by the, the feed, you know, the, the food and, and several different people manufacturing crested gecko food. And, um, just really speaks to that,
1: I think. sorry I kept hitting the button and it didn't go um yeah again um you know I I look at prices on certain things and I think people are doing better than ever I do think there's a lot of really great new products coming out um, I do think that um, you know another thing too like um, even talking patreon groups um, there's a lot of people that are active in a lot of patreon groups that are member of a lot of patreon groups I mean you know what it was like back in the day if you wanted a one-on-one with the breeder you got to hope they either answer the phone or you go down to and are you going to Daytona and go to the Boa Conference and hope that Jeremy Stone, all those guys are there hanging out, whatever it should so happen to be? So I do think that we're always finding new ways to make it a little more, like you said, um, modernized. Um, you know, we are no longer backyard breeders like we might have been in the beginning. We're no longer just taking melamine and building racks. And don't get me wrong, some of us are doing that. Nothing wrong with that. But you know, the caging's getting better. The rack systems, if you choose the rack systems, are getting better. On um, the polycarbonate tubs on rack systems that look like they're just aquariums in a sense. Um, uh, there's just so many things that, you know, just keep on fueling the industry and keep on showing it's expanding. Now, I will say the professionalism might not be good enough when it comes to government. Um, I, you know, I remember we used the argument back in the day, look how much of this we spend money on. Look at FedEx. Look at betting. Look at all these things that are going to get affected when we're gone. Um, I don't think that's ever going to really matter. Um, you know, I have a buddy that's in politics and he had made a comment while talking to one of those bigger hedge funds. He said that the biggest issue that our industry is gonna have is that you don't have a side. Um, Democrat, Republicans, you don't have a side. One of them doesn't go with you. They both hate you equally in a sense. Or they both like you equally in a sense. So, you know, not necessarily having a side to hold on to, I think, is always gonna hurt us on that. And again, I think when it comes to laws and regulations. That is just a variable when it comes to the strength of this market that we cannot control. But again, it is something that uh, blue tongue skinks are back to my example. When we were able to export them, the market was stronger. We can't export anymore, as far as I'm aware. I keep on hearing that some you can, some you can't. But for the most part, I hear skinks are a no no. So with them being a no no, hell, knob tails is another good example. I'm sure you understand that market. You know, those can't be exported like they were before. So that market completely changes because that market was being propped up by the overseas market and the Asian market. So, you know, regulations are that one variable when it comes to this market crashing, you have no control over and you will see price fluctuations in species based on regulations that are coming into play with government.
0: Yeah, there was a really good uh, talk uh, Steve Sykes gave at the um, Gecko Symposium at Tinley last October, where he talked about that very thing, you know, where, different countries and their, their, uh, I guess buying strategies or, or the stuff they were interested in and, and how, you know, shutting down or, or different countries slowing down on their orders from, from stuff from the U S affects the market and, and affects, uh, how the pricing on things here, because if you're all of a sudden not out allowed to export, then all of a sudden you have it a sur- surplus in the U S because most of that stuff was going elsewhere. So that does definitely impact it, but also those things kind of ebb and flow too. Um, so, I mean, it could naturally slow down, but it could also slow down because of government intervention and you know if you if you're in this long enough you see those cycles and you see somebody get into the whatever office or whatever decision making area and and change the rule and say no no we're going to go ahead and allow this export or you have a champion that's going out there and saying hey you're impacting my business we need to be able to export these these are all captive bread there's no illegal activity going on you know we need to make this happen and they change the rule or or you know, make it allowable to export again. So, um, again, I think, you know, when we work together and we band together and we, you know, I guess another great uh example of that is the U S arc and some of the other organizations that are there to kind of help fight for our rights and represent us in a respectable and, and, uh, <laughs> um, professional manner. Um, that, that definitely helps. I think where we, where we fail is when we're divided, you know, and, oh, I'm a, I'm a, uh, Python guy. So I don't care about the gecko guys, or I'm a tortoise guy. I don't care about the lizard people, you know, that kind of thing. It, it can definitely hurt us when we band together and we have bigger numbers, uh, we're stronger and we have more of a voice. So I think organizations like USARC really help us come together with a kind of coherent strategy to prevent some of these bad things from affecting our industry.
2: So, uh, Justin and, well, even you, uh, brought up a good point. So when like, uh, certain species get, um, you know, there's no longer imports or exports even of certain species. Like, um, I think the, it works up, up to a point, but I think the problem is most reptile people don't understand or don't not understand, but I guess they just moderation. They just keep wanting to go bigger and bigger and they want to keep growing. You know, it's not like most businesses, like there's only so many people that are going to be able to keep or want to keep blue tongue skinks. It's not like something you have to have. And I, you know, I, that was always something I was never a big fan of was when people equate this to the farming, because these are animals you keep as a pets or as pets. These are animal. These aren't animals that are going to become food products or something. You know, if rodents, I would consider more farming reptiles. I don't think you can consider it the same thing because you're talking about an animal like a ball python, for instance, the St. Louis zoo has one that's 62 years old and that's just a snake. You're not, dude, that's not including tortoises and turtles, you know, that live twice that or more, you know? So i i feel like we just like my question i have kind of a question i wanted to ask you do you think in this day of age do we really need big breeding facilities like you know i know gourmet rodent isn't a thing anymore but like uh some of these other places you know these big franchises like uh that supply the petco and PetSmart because I remember the talk back in the day was, oh, Pepco and PetSmart's would get people into the hobby, but I don't know if that's true anymore, especially after COVID when everything become more digital. Like, I'm almost willing to bet, I bet when you add someone like Brian Barczyk, Snake Discovery, a lot of those people are probably creating more you know, eyes on this industry than even Petco and PetSmart are, because why would I go out if I don't have to leave my house? I could either watch it at home, and then if I want to get a reptile. I'll just get on morph market or get on some reptile site, you know, or for whatever reason. So, uh, Oh, that was, that was something I was kind of curious about and particularly day's opinion. Cause I know he was very much so for the, you know, everyone having their, their thing. And I just, I just don't know in this day and age if it's, should we even have those big companies anymore? You know,
1: capitalism, buddy. <laughs> I, um, I, I, here's the thing. Um, you know, if you find a way to, again, supply a product in the industry and do it in volume and do it successfully, and you're putting out a good product, you're always going to do well. Um, you know, we saw the new facility that Darian posted, um, for roaches, man, what a beautiful facility. You know, he's found ways to do them in large numbers, not having to worry about things that can go along or go wrong along the way because he built the right facility out to do it. Um, and I think a lot of these other things we're talking, especially rodents, I do think there's a right way of doing it. I think there's, uh, I wouldn't say a wrong way, but I think there's going to be people that do it in different ways. You see some of these facilities where they have the big ass fans, they have these beautiful metal racks, and they're producing rats. And then you go to another guy who's literally using a chicken coop, and he's got fans blowing around, and he's got no way to regulate his temperatures. He's also producing rats. As long as the product's good in the end, I think that's all that matters. Um, well, but you're, these big you're companies will always farming- be. A-
2: Hey, you're talking about, I, I totally agree with the insects, the feeder stuff that I, I think could be equated to farming. I'm talking more like when gourmet rodent and all the, you know, pumping out, was it, 5,000 ball python clutches or whatever, you know, I'm talking animals that would go into the pet trade. It'd be different if yeah. the ball pythons were going towards food, but we're talking about the pet trade. Uh, you know, uh, uh, he may not be a popular guy, but Sean Bradley had a, interesting you know he he said something pretty interesting. it's like I made ten thousand cinnamons or something like that, you know in a course of a year or a couple of years or something and he's like, you know, where does it go? I want to know you know where are all these animals going you know is I know you know they can they do uh they send their a lot of their sort of local chains and stuff in the u s and everything but it's like do we really need to do that anymore is there a reasoning for that anymore you know that's more what i was talking about not so much i totally get the rodents and the roaches and all that but i'm talking more of the reptile side of it
1: these people that are mass producing or whatever um well here's the thing um gourmet rodent didn't decide one day they were going to produce five thousand ball python clutches um gourmet rodent organically grew their company to the size that was necessary to supply petco petco had their demands and what they needed and they have to meet those demands and if they don't they get fines anytime if you get an order from five if you get an order for five thousand ball from petco and you supply you have to pay for the thousand that you give them
0: i i think uh um you know, that as long as there's a demand there, I think there's a need for that. You know, I think that's kind of what the roadies going down there. Um, if, if the demand leaves, then of course, you know, that changes and, and Petco and PetSmart make uh smaller orders or, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, I, you know, I don't have a lot of insights. I, I remember hearing, uh, um, uh, Alan Rapashi talking about those kind of things with, uh, you know crested geckos in particular where he was supplying those chains with uh crested geckos and kind of the the um, amount of effort it took to build that industry you know where he had to come up with the the feed and the and produce enough animals where he kind of got it down to like maybe more of a farming rather than a breeding program and um i i think the the I guess scary answer to your question is that a lot of these animals are are dying, you know. They they're yeah, just not making I guess it. that's a, that, I, so, I,
2: that's what I was I guess more getting at is like how many more animals can these big franchises take when like I'm just telling you ball pythons live in 30, 50, 60 years. Now, now at that's, some point that that has to stop because yeah. The pet keepers are only going to want so many pets, you know. They're not going to want to. You know, well, I would assume they wouldn't want to breed. I know Dave's going to say, you know, we're hoping they become breeders, but I feel like we're just adding more fuel fuel to the fire at that point. I I would probably
0: say if if you're, you know, talking about breeders like yourself, you know, then yeah, the the industry can only support so many. But when you're talking about the kid that's bugging his mom for a snake and she finally breaks down and gets him a ball python and he loses interest in a couple weeks and the ball python just kinda, you know, fades away or or is neglected right. until they put it onto Craigslist and somebody tries to rescue it and it dies. You know, those those kind of things. I think is and for every one of you, there's probably fifty of those you know where they're just right, right, uh, right. not not really into it, and so you know the average lifespan of a ball python in the u s right. is, is not sixty years yeah, you know, exactly. it's, it's probably a year or two you know with yeah. with the the attention span of of kids these days but i i mean and I think that goes for for any age you know and and that's kind of the my my problem with the import industry is that it seems to be like just fueling right. that throw away pet attitude. And I think as, as we have these higher priced animals, people are care more, you know, they're not just going to say, yeah, go ahead and get that, get that $20 lizard or $20 snake. If it's a $200 snake, they're going to maybe think about it more, plan more so they can be successful. And if they, if they lose interest, then they're going to want to get some of that money back. So they're going to sell it, you know, they're going to keep it healthy until they can sell it. So I think, you know, as the industry becomes stronger and grows and, and, you know, we see maybe less imports coming in or whatever, and more captive bred animals, then maybe that changes a little, I don't know. That's a hard one.
2: Well, I think that kind of leads to another discussion as uh, you know, this polarizing, you know, you guys were talking about, um, what was it earlier? Um, divides between species group i don't really see too much of divide. maybe ball python people just because their mindset is just different than other species keepers from what i've noticed not saying it's bad or good or anything of the sort just different and um i see more of a divide between the breeders and the pet sector you know the racks the cage keepers those kind of people and i i kind of wonder with both sides producing so much well, I can't speak too much on the pet side, but breeder side for sure. So many people producing so much video content, which I think is, it's polarizing and it's causing issues as far as, you know, if the guy who probably wanted it as a pet looked at the breeder and, you know, he's glorifying the business aspect of it. Well, he, after a while you start seeing that stuff. A lot of times it'll, you know, convince you why racks are better or why maybe you need to become the next you know justin or ozzy or something like that so i kind of wondered is that a detriment as well you know because we you know i i, I heard of ryan mcveigh said something i thought was kind of kind of made me think a little bit but um it was uh because when i i planned i kind of thought about maybe doing youtube videos but then he said you know for reptile breeders if we're doing YouTube videos, you know, can we do them without having your racks, like a row of racks in the background, or a whole wall of racks? We this big, you know, just showcase of different animals you have in the background, rather than just showing that animal because it kind of gives that false sense that oh, I can, if he could do it, I could do it, or something like that, or someone who probably wasn't even interested in breeding. And I always think that might be the burnout too, as so many people are they're so they want to invest so much into this dream, I guess, of, you know, having, well, like, um, J- Justin, I remember listening to you back. Uh, I was listening to him not too long ago, but your old NPR days, you know, you know, and Eric too. Eric had a sh- totally different mindset than he does now, yeah. you know, and it's, yeah. you know, your mind, your, your mindset can change a lot over time as well. But I kind of wonder, well, if the, if, If it wasn't portrayed that way, would it have been different? And I think burnout, too, is if you're only interested in one thing in this hobby and it's this breeding, you know, if you were going to be a small breeder, maybe if you just kept things in in a few cages rather than rack systems, you know, at least for your adults anyways, Mm -hmm. you know, would it help? continue or keep some sort of interest because i think that's another thing that gets people in trouble is if you're keeping in racks invariably you just get bored because you don't see them like you would in a cage so what do you usually do you just keep buying more and more and get more trade more just get more animals to kind of fulfill that desire that you know you would probably get if you kept them in you know a more naturalistic or not just just a, a, a nice cage you know i won't even Say, you know, because everyone's definition of naturalistic or whatever it is will be different. But, you know, I kind of I kind of wonder, you know, could that have could that change the hobby in a more of a beneficial way?
0: I think there is a push towards that. And I think it is strengthening, you know, the the true or the I guess the the um, real aspect of the hobby of the love of the animals, you know, as you as we're moving towards less animals or, or moving away from the j- rows and rows of racks to maybe each individual animal costs a little more. We're not, you know, trying to provide, provide for pet smart or something like that. I still right, think right. there's a place for that, but the small scale breeders that. It's a
2: shame it. Dave's not on right now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, well, what I was going to say is too, but don't you also think, say with the ball Python community and I, Maybe because the mindset of other species keepers are are different, and they will keep in larger enclosures and less animals. Well, if we did that with ball pythons, and I'm not talking saying everybody, but if mm-hmm. say sixty percent rather than what probably five percent of people who breed ball pythons probably keep them in cages or something, yeah. Yeah. so wouldn't that increase the value? Wouldn't that keep from these projects is plummeting to nothing? I mean, or at least give it a delay. Obviously, they would still drop if people are breeding them. They're going to still drop. But would it be more of a gradual drop rather than an overnight, you know, panic? Oh, my God, it dropped half its price or whatever it is. So I just I kind of wonder. And I I wonder if it's the fault of, you know, us breeders for wanting to put, you know, a lot of that stuff out on social media and portraying that. But. I, I, I mean, and I think that's why Patreon is a thing too, right? Because then yeah. you can cultivate your own groups rather than, you know, the old YouTube way where everyone saw. Yeah,
0: I I did appreciate the the move. Oh, <laughs> now we got some echo. Sorry. from your stuff. <laughs> um, I I I do appreciate the move. Um you know, that we watched uh, with Brian Barcheck and his videos from, you know, the rows and rows of rack systems and getting each other bit by different snakes, moving towards kind of the reptarian days <laughs> when you have, uh, you know, yeah. big cages and, and, you know, a retic in a giant room size cage. I, I really like that right. uh, move. And, and, you know, I think it was a nice evolution. Now the reason he could do that was because of his YouTube presence and, you know, the, the clicks you know, getting fine. there. Yeah. So. Yep. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. I mean, there's so many aspects of this hobby, and I think I think this was a really great discussion. Um, unfortunately, we've lost Dave, and uh, <laughs> we're 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 kind of going on an hour and a half now, which is a little bit longer than we typically go. But I I think there's just so many such a rich field, and maybe we'll have to have you guys back on to to discuss this further, but yeah, just a, a really, uh, a fertile ground yeah. for discussion for sure. But I mean, right, I, right. if you've got kind of a, a summary or a, a consensus, you know, of what, you know, to kind of summarize your argument, we'll, we'll kind of have last statements and then we'll, we'll, uh, Okay.
2: well, I feel like I have to after after challenging a lot of this stuff or saying, you know, making it sound like a negative Nancy, I I don't I don't dislike ball pythons. I have a lot of ball pythons and um, I don't think the markets, you know, obviously dying or going to go away. I think I think we have to worry more about legislation and all that more. So than just, you know, than anything. But other than that, I'm, you know, markets always seen stuff like this. I think we will get hit harder. Because the market blew up so much, so I'm sure it'll you know it's gonna hit a little harder than it has before since we've had so many people breeding now, you know at least with like ball pythons and stuff you know but aside from that, you know I because I feel like I have to emphasize this because if you don't, people just assume you hate ball Pythons and I always tell Nick, I go, you know why you always had trouble selling ball pythons because you talk shit on ball pythons <laughs> all the time you know but it's yeah i have to clarify that as it's not that i think that the world is ending and ball pythons won't have a presence i i will admit you know i all the species of python i keep ball pythons still they're really hard to beat and i'm not just talking about morris i'm talking about just personality wise you know they're just and i i didn't mean to just attack ball pythons in this but they're just such a big part of the market it's I felt like they were just the obvious choice to, you know, in general talk about, you know. But it's like I said, it's not that just like ball pythons or anything like that. I think they're there's a re- there's multiple reasons why they make such a good pet, you know, rather than just over just the colors and you know stuff. Mm-hmm. So,
0: well said, <laughs> Dave. You want to uh, kind of summarize the. The yeah, pro? Um, so, well, I
1: think it's always been um, the hobby to rag on ball play fans. Yeah. I
0: don't, well, it, that's Dave. the the uh, technical issues are always a you know challenge, especially when we have four of us on at a time. But um, well,
2: I would have rather have had Dave talk about the podcast because I <laughs> yeah I know very little and I'm I'm <laughs> always skeptical till you know till we got a couple till we get a couple episodes in because. Yeah. you know like i said he chose three people i'm not familiar with ryan though he he has another guy I, I wish i told him we need to do a uh um like an introduction podcast so we can get to know mm-hmm. each other because we all have yeah. weird different sense of humor and just get to know each other so we don't rub each other the wrong way because you know i've seen i've listened to plenty of podcasts where it's just the host you know you know even eric and owen their humor was different at first but then they kind of settled in and they got they got into the groove of things yeah i kind of was like well maybe we need to at least get to know each other because i'm not i know junior but i don't talk to junior that often so it's not like Mm. we are that friendly with each other or anything uh but yeah yeah, it's oh my god i don't even know damn it, Dave, (laughs) he had to be gone i'm trying to think of the name was it the (laughs) the Nope, drawing a blank. Can't think of its name, but it's a podcast with me, Dave, Jr. from JMG, and then another fellow named Ryan, and it's just going to be the four of us. We're not going to all be on at the same time, but it'll be like interchanging, you know, between. I'm sure Dave will be on most of them. Though he's a pretty interesting guy who has some, you know, good insight on just reptile stuff in general. You know, yeah, it's I told him.
0: All for for one one. reptile podcast. There we go.
2: That's sad. Didn't even remember what it was. (laughs) But yeah, no, I just, uh, (laughs) it's, uh, hopefully we can get nerdy like NPR, you know, Mm I'd like i like to have both of you guys on, you know, Rob and Justin, because we got some interesting topics we'd like to talk to uh, just about, you know, just all kinds of things, you know, Eric and Owen, I've been, I've been telling them we we need to get them on because they're the, you know yeah. shit if anyone can Pine tell ears. you how to find airs <laughs> and just people yeah. who can you know tell you how you how you can deal with long or handle the longevity aspect of podcast yeah. uh, podcasting <laughs> you know most yeah. people you know they do it for a solid year or two and then they you're three even and then they disappear and falls apart you know because yeah. yeah so like how did they i don't know i think there's a bunch of cool stuff we could talk to them about a, you know along with you guys you
0: know yeah. cuz you know yeah so, i i don't know i think i i mean i i really we were talking about this before we started the podcast but uh dave had a podcast before and the name's of course failing me i'm i'm terrible with names uh, oh, just like uh, you are her house rock, yeah, oh, her I can rock. Remember, yeah i can remember yeah.
2: that one but i can't remember what <laughs> <one> you actually <laughs> once me on oh, god I already-
0: yeah, but, uh, but they they did a great job with that one. I really enjoyed it, and I mean, Dave is just a great character. You know, he's just oh, yeah. you know got yeah. some. He's he thinks in a in a really cool way, and and so I think it's going to be really a successful yeah. podcast. He's, you know, just yeah, that longevity's the. He's you know, a very
2: open-minded guy. You know, I think yeah. that's what makes yeah. him. And he just asks interesting questions. Yeah, you know? yeah, he's always yeah. curious, willing to learn. You know, so I think that's why it'll be good to have him on it because he's I. I always blow him and tell him. Like, I was like, "Man, you could really do some damage in the podcasting world if you decide to do it." But we'll yeah. we'll see how it goes because it's failed tonight. So I don't. You know, I'm a little nervous yeah. that this may not work. You know, unless he's <laughs> His, willing to go back to the Walmart parking
0: lot, the or parking lot. Yeah, yeah
2: with that he was doing with the other ones. Uh huh. Yeah.
0: yeah, that uh, that's the the challenge. Is those technical issues really can bog you down? I think. I mean, Nick's a great example of that, where he announced his podcast and recorded a bunch of issues, but they had technical issues and he wasn't pleased with it. So we haven't seen an episode yet, you know? So it's like, yeah, what a slacker. (laughs) (laughs) Cause I, I'd love to hear. I I mean, I've heard some of the guests that they've had and I really want to hear those interviews. Oh,
2: yeah, uh, for sure. Oh, without a doubt. I don't know
0: that they're going to be released or not. So yeah, I, 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 uh, I'm looking forward to it. So hopefully you guys overcome the, the technical hurdles and and get on get get that going and you know i think maybe four four uh, hosts could be a benefit because if somebody's not available you got three, you know two others to choose from yeah, so yeah. you know there's always going to be two of you that can get on there and do it or or one you know well
2: it's just and then we can is. we we all keep such a wide range of species too so all of us yeah. can target different things cuz i mean there's only mm. So much I'll be able to talk to you with someone who's really into lizards or something like that, or yeah. you know, or whatever whatever species it is—tortoises, mm-hmm. turtles, you know. You can always tell like when that. somebody's
0: out of their depth when they're getting into a yeah. species group that they're not familiar with and they're asking very, you know, inane questions. You're like, oh man, this is going to be a little rough, but
2: <laughs> right, right, yeah.
0: Right. yeah. So yeah. that's good to have a wealth of expertise, a broad expertise, you know, cross group,
2: like, like with uh, with Rob. I we'd like to have Rob on, and I yeah. think with Rob, I would do, I, I probably wouldn't even be a part of it because he keeps so many. He keeps it species I'm just not that familiar with. we we'll probably have to have well a- anyone other than me up <laughs> with it. You know? uh, now,
0: Rob is a wealth of information. I mean, I mean you I mean you heard it yeah. here. He 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 knows a, a lot a lot about the industry and a lot about yeah. a, a white industry variety. and just herping.
2: I'd like yeah. i like I like, like hearing your guys' herping stories. You guys always oh, yeah. have
0: you know Yeah, there needs to be more herping podcasts, you know. <laughs>
2: yeah. We always Dave, well we all like for us we like I mean, it wouldn't just solely be herping, but we like talking her, you know, cause we are, we all like Dave and them don't travel, but he, well, he travels around the United States, but yeah, you know, he sees yeah. a lot of cool stuff, you know? You, yeah. He was you out know. here
0: for a reptile show and he was asking me for uh, places to go, go herp while he was in town, you know? So yeah, right, he's, right, he's right. Uh, looking for opportunities there. I, unfortunately yeah. I didn't get out with him, but yeah, one of these days we'll have to make that happen when he's out for a, a show. Yeah. The I've been,
2: I've been getting so many pictures of like Utah and your Mm guys' national parks and stuff. And I'm like, good God, it looks beautiful. Oh, it's a good (laughs) (laughs) good, There's a
0: reason I live here.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I can tell.
0: Yeah. Keep an eye out for all for one reptile podcast and, and hopefully we'll see some uh, episodes from you guys soon. Yeah. Thanks for uh, coming on tonight. It's been a a really fun uh, discussion for sure. So anything else you you want to throw out there, promote for yourself?
2: Uh, just, TJW Exotics. I mean, you you could follow me, but it's I'm not updating a whole lot because I've been really busy with this building. So I haven't just social media has been the last thing on my mind. And and honestly, it it (laughs) just feels nice and I have to deal with social media. I hear people wanting to make it into like a job, and it's just like man, yeah. I just, I just. I just don't like it. <laughs> Not like that anyway. So
0: I'm with you on that. Yeah. I, I mainly just post pictures from herping trips, you know, if I yeah. remember to do it. But yeah.
2: And, and cool. like I said, it, I think it has something to, uh, you know, with your longevity, you know, I knew to go to you for anteresia. You yeah. know, you have a name and a species or you're known for a species. So I know to go to you. Same thing with Rob. If I was a good, you know, Asian, certain Asian rats and, you know, some of the West Indies boas or something, I would know to go to talk, at least talk to them, you know? So Mm -hmm. there's something to be said too about, you know, if you, if you truly into a species, you know, you will be known for that species, you know? And then people will reach out to you. Like, I don't, I'm not saying I'm not nowhere near on your guys' level. I've probably been in it half the time you guys have been in it, but like even, you know, I still get messages and stuff. So that's some of these newer people have to be on social media every day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes multiple times a day just to build a name for themselves or something like that. So, you know, there I think there's something to be said for longevity in this hobby, too, if you want to, you know, make
0: that's it a, into That's another business. thing that we could have talked a lot about tonight yeah. is, you know, when you're getting into the hobby, um, you know, sometimes those flash in the pan, it works out okay and you can, you know, build and grow really fast. But sometimes that slow grow... You know, so you build a clientele, you build you know people who recognize you, and you you are known for certain group of of species, and then you can kind of branch out and expand, you know, and stuff.
2: But yeah, uh, like Eric, Eric with Morelia Python Radio, I think yeah. he did. You know, it was a fantastic idea. You know, yeah i yeah. i would I wouldn't want to tell Nick this to his face, but I, I mean, dude, Eric's right up there with him as far as people. You know, when you think of Morelia, I'm not saying that you know Eric's writing a book status on carpet pythons but i'm saying when you think of morelia carpet Mm -hmm. pythons in general i think of nick and eric you know because they've eric's been doing the podcast for so long now and you just associate him with carpet pythons and he's out there and you hear him you know nick's kind of unless you've talked to him on the phone or you get on the internet you know you don't have you know you, you're not used to just creeping on them from afar You know, because we reptile people Aren't very social, so sometimes we like to lurk Before we start chit-chatting with people You know <laughs> uh,
0: But yeah. yeah Well, we thanks for coming on I don't know if Dave can hear us Or if he can chime in here or not But uh, um, No, I'm here Okay, yeah, do you want to throw Barely out any which, information? God damn it, it? No, Dave. it again
3: <laughs> this is pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. takes us back a decade. This is pretty yeah.
0: good, right? Yep. I guess there there is a a price to be paid for living out, you know, where you have a lot of land and a big facility. You know,
2: Dave, this is making me nervous. If we get stuck with someone that I'm not that familiar with, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> I just- I might have but. to go. Me and him don't even live that far from each other. I will drive to his place. Huh. We can both go to the Walmart parking lot together.
0: Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you if you uh, don't know Dave Levinson, check him out on Facebook or you know the other uh, social media um, and. I mean, he's, he's got some really fun posts and some crazy antics and is really entertaining. So, um, yeah. even if you're not that into reptiles that you can still, uh, watch his stuff and be entertained for sure. <laughs> his, uh, 4th of July posts are especially entertaining. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although you usually oh. see his, uh, crack here and there, <laughs> but uh, oh, really yeah. a, a, just a fun guy. And, and, you know, if you see him at a reptile show, go chat with him. He's very knowledgeable and just, a. uh. Like we said before, he's just interesting and, and, uh, curious. Interesting. Right.
2: That's a nice way of putting it. (laughs) And and he,
0: he, he, you know, uh, is very connected. Like he knows a lot of people and, and yeah. So check him out. Um, yeah. Custom scales,
2: (laughs) by the way, that's his company name. Just throwing it out there
0: for him. Yeah. Custom scales. Thank you. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, uh, thanks for, for being on. And we'll hopefully have you back again, uh, Down the road, but this has been a lot of fun and, uh, thanks for coming. All right. Well, uh, thanks to NPR radio for, uh, being the umbrella over our podcast here and letting, uh, reptile fight club, uh, be on their network. And we appreciate Eric and Owen and all they do. And, uh, thanks again for listening and we'll catch you again next week for reptile fight.
3: Club.